Hello and welcome to this video. Today we are joined by Dr. Uh, Pickering to uh, talk about Chesterton. Um, how are you, Doctor? Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm very glad to have you onto the channel to talk about Chesterton. He's someone who's influenced some of my favorite thinkers like C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien. So I really wanted to learn more about him and I'm sure the audience will be very interested to learn more about him. So perhaps to start off, who was Chesterton? Well, he was born in 1874 at the height of Britain's uh, Victorian power and empire into a, a very prosperous family in London. His family were actually the owners of the estate agents, Chesterton's, who are still around today. And uh, they were a very creative family. His father retired young due to ill health and spent his whole life doing art and crafts as an amateur artist. And Chesterton sort of grew up in a very creative environment in London, not a religious one. They rarely went to church. They were sort of Unitarian Universalists with a general belief in God and goodness, but nothing very specifically Christian. And uh, he had one brother who he got on very well with and argued with all the time. And then uh, at school, he was fantastically undistinguished. He spent his time amusing himself and his classmates rather than studying. And yet at the end of it, uh, the headmaster told his mother, six foot of genius, ma'am, cherish him, cherish him. They managed to make an impression in spite of not bothering at all with any kind of work. And then after school, he had a couple of years rather casually studying at the Slade School of Art and University College London. Didn't complete any sort of degree, uh, didn't really do very much, and then drifted into uh, publishing. Became a publisher's reader and then a journalist, uh, started writing reviews and articles, and discovered this was his metier. So he, he claimed that he was in it because it was the easiest way to make a living. He was certainly very well suited to it. From uh, an early age, he had written and drawn endlessly. And uh, as he grew up, his journalism wrestled with a huge range of serious topics. He was a poet, a novelist, an essayist, a biographer, a historian, a dramatist, a literary critic, a social critic, a political theorist, a Christian apologist, and a debater. Uh, and during his lifetime, he had something like 4,000 essays and articles published. He wrote three or four a week for decades, and something like 80 books published um, probably more since because their uh, collections have been published since then. And so he was very prolific and he saw himself as a journalist just writing on any topic under the sun. But uh, through it all, he wove a consistent Christian kind of apologetic in an unusual way. Um, but also he engaged very strongly with the culture of his day. So he, his, some of his literary criticism is very well known, particularly his studies of Charles Dickens and Robert Browning. He was one of the leading journalists of his days. He was quite a well-known public intellectual. Uh, he wrote a column for the Daily News from 1903 to 1913 for the Illustrated London News for 30 years. In his own day, he was very influential. He debated people like George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells and uh, was perhaps the leading Christian public in intellectual of his time. So he's been uh, very much neglected uh, more recently, but at the time he was a very... A prominent person. He was also famous for being just very likable and benign and incredibly absent-minded. He uh, once sent his wife a telegram which read, I'm in Mar Market Harbour, where am I supposed to be? And uh, she replied, home. And uh, he was also very fat. George Bernard Shaw said, what a gentleman Chesterton is. I saw him give up his seat to two women on a bus. <laughs> so he was quite a character of, of the time as well. Yeah. What do you think, perhaps you touched upon this a bit, is what makes him perhaps have fallen out of popularity in the modern days compared to a thinker like perhaps Tolkien or C.S. Lewis? Because there seems to be quite a big gap between the two. 
and their overall popularity. Uh, well, out of the, the catch, the downside with journalism engaging so much with contemporary issues is a lot of it is dated very much. Hmm. And he did he did involve himself in a lot of ephemeral debates, uh, talking about uh, incidents, people, issues which are long gone. Whereas Lewis and Tolkien actually dealt more with big and lasting questions in their hmm. writing, and not with such transient topics. So with Chesterton, you quite often have to excavate. Um, a little to find out what was actually the the issue at the time that he was involved with to really work out where his essays and things are coming from. And the things that have lasted best, of course, are the ones that are less engaged with those uh, temporary transient concerns. Uh, The Father Brown stories, for example, or some of his books um, on Dickens and others don't really uh, fall into that category. But unfortunately, you do have to do a bit of work to get into his essays to find out what the context was to really appreciate them. Yes, perhaps um, developing on this idea, what were perhaps the main themes and the ideas that Chesterton was wrestling with? Of course, it's Christianity and his other ideas that he was wrestling with. What, what were perhaps, if you were to say, the five biggest or the three biggest themes that he was going to be struggling Well, I mean, with? the first one really is concerned with the theology of creation, and it comes from his position as an outsider to Christian things. And he started off, he said, uh, with the developing his own mystical theory, as he called it. Uh, in his youth, uh, in uh, the mid 1890s, uh, his sort of early 20s, when he said that his theory was substantially this: that even mere existence, reduced to its primary limits, was extraordinary enough to be exciting. At the back of our brains, so to speak, there was a forgotten blaze or burst of astonishment at our own existence. The object of the artistic and spiritual life was to dig for this submerged sunrise of wonder so that a man sitting in a chair might suddenly understand that he was actually alive and be happy. And so the sense of wonder is central to his uh, life and work. And it comes from the understanding that actually divine creation means that all around us is uh, supernaturally charged with the glory of God, uh, as uh, Gerald Money Hopkins might put it. And therefore that the kind of atheist view of life that sees things as dull and dreary, is completely wrong from the start and misreads the nature of our existence. And so the sense of wonder is key. I mean, he said um, later in life that the one thing I'm certain of is that the age needs, first and foremost, to be startled, to be taught the nature of wonder. And that's an unusual starting point for an apologist. He wasn't particularly starting by defending doctrines or the historicity of the Bible. He was wanting to kind of wake up people's imaginations and help them to appreciate what life is really about. And uh, we call it probably nowadays in theological terms, a kind of sacramental ontology, uh, the sense that the whole of creation has a sort of sacramental sense is full of signs of God's creation, God's uh, presence, God's grace. And uh, but he put all that in very non-theological terms. He put that in terms that you could read in a daily newspaper and was able to communicate these things to the ordinary person in the street, the non-religious reader in a remarkable way. He called it the stupendous marvel of existence, but it's particularly the doctrine of creation. And from that follows uh, a theology of joy, that he thinks joy should be a central theological category, not just on the margins. And that affects, for example, the approach to ethics. Uh, so he uh, thought that ethics could, Christian ethics could be conceived in terms of a dance. Uh, the virtues like children going around the mulberry bush, only the mulberry bush is that uh, burning bush, which is a symbol of the incarnation kind of uh, rhythmic dance around the person of Christ. 
and uh, the life of virtue, therefore not as something dull and dreary, but as something exciting and beautiful. And likewise, uh, he thought that this upturns your view of uh, secular and atheist uh, approaches to science and art, because that these are presented as being novel and radical and uh, taboo-busting and all, all very much uh, uh, the impressive and thrilling things but he said that is actually the reverse of the case he said science and art without morality are not dangerous in the sense commonly supposed they're not dangerous like a fire but dangerous like a fog a fire is dangerous in its brightness a fog in its dullness and thought without morals is merely dull like a fog so he said actually atheism secularism are the dull and the boring options christianity is the exciting one and uh you have wonder and joy at the heart of things. And then beyond that, you have a, a sense that Christian ideas are the best interpretation of human experience, history and culture. And that he presents Christianity as the thing that explains life best. So he says sin is a doctrine as practical as potatoes. All the people who try and ignore sin, try and think that people are just good, full stop, are actually um, completely misled about what the way life is. The doctrine of the fall, you have to take it as an idea is a very practical idea to explain um, the contradictions of paradoxes of existence. Christianity built on paradoxes, that's actually a good thing, not a bad thing, because life is paradoxical, existence is paradoxical. And so the paradoxes of Christianity fit uh, beautifully into the realities of human life. And so he's really interested in applying rather than um, explaining Christian doctrine, showing that they bring in human life the greatest fulfillment and flourishing. And, there, and as part of that, he's constantly bringing Christian ideas into interaction with the culture, literature, art, his, history, politics, etc. So he presents Christianity in very dynamic terms and uh, just points out that actually we need to upturn our view of uh, sort of the atheist and the secular as being the exciting and Christianity as being the, uh, the boring and the dull. And he works to reverse that perception imaginatively. In in society today, we hear a lot of times atheists and a lot of, I suppose, post-Enlightenment rationalists constantly focusing on perhaps the idea of, oh, we have to have everything put down into analytical philosophy, into direct syllogisms, into things, almost a world in which there can be no paradox, in a world in which everything has to be direct and, and for up at, at, in the forefront, I suppose, and clear. But what do you think is the role of paradox? I suppose a lot of people might be coming to this and be thinking, well, if Christianity is a, is only a paradox, why should we accept it? What is the role of paradox and, and how can we appreciate it? Well, that's, that's a big question for you. Um, one thing it tells us is that the world is bigger and more complicated and more wonderful than we think it is. So in Chesterton's day, there was a bit of a, a high point of the sort of a earlier um secularist thinking they had got things wrapped up with enlightenment reason and seeing enlightenment reason as a universal rationality now we know much better that it was actually very much conditioned european male white um, hegemonic way of approaching uh, the understanding of the world around us it wasn't a an unbiased impartial universal re reason as it was presented but at the time they were just uh, on the basis that they cracked everything and religion was wasted the secularization theory was at its height and they thought uh, this was the last word. The Enlightenment was the last word in uh, intellect, the intellectual history of humanity. So, for example, Max Weber famously said, there are no mysterious incalculable forces that come into play. The world is disenchanted. And one of the functions of paradox is it's part of the re-enchantment of the world that Lewis, Tolkien, Chesterton and other Christian writers were 
vigorously engaged in to say, actually, no, we haven't got the world wrapped up. We can't just um, put everything in terms of syllogisms. Uh, life is more complicated and imaginative. Secondly, you need the imagination and indeed the em emotional intelligence, as well as reason to properly understand the world. Reason alone is not enough. Reason works with the imagination. Reason never is alone because we actually are using our imaginations when we think we're just reasoning. But uh, and of course, this has been much more uh, explained. Ex expanded upon and explored by philosophy recently now philosophers are all very keen on the imagination but you know back in 100 years ago uh, they thought they were just applying cold icebox reason to everything and in fact uh, now people look back and say well it wasn't really the case and uh, philosophers are rediscovering emotional intelligence with you know affect and other things becoming prominent concepts in philosophy and theology today. So Chesterton was quite ahead of his time in, in pointing out that the world is more complicated, needs to be understood using more different aspects of the human mind, and uh, that, that, that the Enlightenment was really presenting a very inadequate concept of human reason. I mean, Newman had said that before, for example, and certain others, uh, and just said that actually this Enlightenment idea of reason was very narrow and very limited, and there is much more to human uh, reasoning and understanding than was being presented as the last word in human thought. Mm, that's that's definitely a very interesting thought, because, of course, if you turn also to the works of Dostoevsky or Berdyaev, there's also in, in the Eastern tradition, there's a, there's a very strong sense of of that dialectical thinking and, of course, that paradox as well. And that's something which is quite a beautiful um, link up with those thinkers as well. I suppose developing on this idea of of the need to go beyond this perhaps enlightenment reasoning, what was the role and importance of creativity and fiction to Chesterton? Well, it was a central part of his life from the beginning. I mean, he spent his whole childhood writing and drawing, and he was always writing uh, different kinds of stories. Uh, and so for him, uh, I think, uh, I don't know if you know Jessamine West's uh, words that fiction uh, reveals truth that reality obscures. About it. That was kind of um, the sort of way which he'd use uh, fiction to uh, open up some of the mysteries of life that uh, life showing that life is not what we simply see on the surface but you need to go deeper down and fiction enables us to explore those kinds of truths that uh, ordinary uh, non-fictional realistic observation cannot reach and so he, he's always constructing narratives that try and explore things now a lot of the time he does that allegorically his novels uh, usually have ideas kind of personified uh, he liked. He said he likes the ideas wrestling naked. So a lot of his novels are not conventionally conventional novels. They uh, present different sort of philosophies and ideologies in conflict as a way of exploring their uh, disputes. Father Brown's stories are a bit different. They're his most conventional writings. Maybe why they've been the most successful. They are just very well crafted detective stories that don't have that allegorical uh, approach in the same way. But he's always using narrative to understand things. And now if you think of uh, philosophers like Alistair McIntyre, Charles Taylor, others saying that our understanding of reality is narratological, uh, you know, Chesterton is, is essentially instinctively uh, portraying that through fiction, that you understand, we understand our lives through the stories we tell, the stories we hear. Uh, we, we have to understand it in narrative terms. That, that is how we construct our, our vision of reality. And so in his fiction and his creativity, he is kind of constructing different stories. And that applies in his nonfiction, too, because the historical narratives we tell uh, apply to how uh, how we understand, you know, our nature, our, our nation, our class, our um, different uh, parts of our social identity 
are very much put in, if framed by the kind of historical narratives we tell. And we're having a great number of debates about history at the moment, aren't we? Difficult histories, uh, patriotic histories, all sorts of different kinds of histories. And Chesterton was on to that as well, really, with the, how you understand English history, particularly. That was his concern from a religious point of view. And again, it comes back to what is the dominant narrative, which is um, who controls the narrative, questions like that. So who would interrogate people in non-fiction narrative terms as well as in fiction? And then that narrative is a sort of central theme uh, for all his writing. Mm -hmm. Perhaps developing on this theme of fiction a bit more, what what would you say was his relationship between fiction and and child and children? Because I was I was listening to quite a delightful talk um about a CS in the CS Lewis Society last week, and it was a, it was talking about how um the role of fiction played a role to develop children's understanding of the good or understanding how people can defeat dragons and fight dragons. I was wondering um what what Chesterton's input to that discussion was and how it could. Uh, how fiction could play an edifying role in the life and development of the youth. Uh, okay, well, that's interesting. I mean, he did write uh, some of his poems and things for children, but it was more writing for adults, but in the sense that it was the same idea that fiction can get past the roadblocks, mm. what C.S. Lewis called the watchful dragons, that uh, guard mm. the, the imagination. The idea, you know, our secular society has somewhat imprisoned the human imagination mm. and makes it very hard for us to really... Uh, un come into contact with, engage with the transcendent and the divine. And so fiction gives us one way round that. It uh, enables the imagination to explore, uh, to adventure in ways which uh, are sort of secular frame, uh, the imminent frame, if you like, uh, prevent it from doing so. And so he was doing that for adults more than for children. Mm -hmm. uh, he loved children and he was great with children, but uh, it was particularly trying to liberate the imagination uh, but mainly for for adults, and that's partly why he wrote allegorical fiction to try and uh, bring in sort of spiritual and moral themes that mm -hmm. would have been hard for people to engage with if they hadn't been couched in fictional form. Mm -hmm. Developing on this kind of idea of spirit, the spirituality of Chesterton, you, in the in your introduction of who he was, he um you introduce him as a Unitarian, perhaps in as a child, um, and then later on he. I, um, in my understanding, is correct. He goes from high Anglicanism to then and finally to Catholicism. What was that journey, and and what do you think brought him through these different stages of his walk with Christ? Uh, well, well, I don't think he was a signed-up Unitarian. His his parents, the only church they went to was a Unitarian chapel, which they occasionally went to. There was a, a very famous uh, orator called Stockford Brooke, who was mm -hmm. the the minister there. He was a well-known. Uh, extremely articulate and eloquent public speaker. It's not saying they actually signed up to Unitarian doctrines, mm -hmm. but that was the kind of atmosphere he felt he was brought up in. Mm -hmm. A very vague religiosity, not hostile to Christianity, but not engaged with. And I don't think he um, was taught very much um, Christianity until he met his wife uh, in 1896. And she was a devout Anglo-Catholic. So through her, he started moving in Anglo-Catholic circles. By the time they got married in 1901, uh, he was in a still slightly vague and hazy way, uh, a kind of signed up Christian. And then he, from then on, with increasing understanding, he's defending Christianity all the way. And the thing about being an Anglo-Catholic is that doctrinally, there isn't a great distance from there to being a Catholic, as in Roman Catholic, uh, because Anglo-Catholics are very much, uh, as far as you can be in the Church of England, 
uh, espousing as much Catholic doctrine as they could within the C of E. So theologically, he was very much in a Catholic frame, not a Protestant frame of mind uh, from the beginning, uh, from when he first got got involved with his wife and with Anglo-Catholicism. And his theology doesn't actually change massively. So if you look back at the books he wrote before 1922, when he joined the Roman Catholic Church, uh, there isn't uh, anything very much that stands out as Protestant or otherwise inconsistent in the earlier works like Orthodoxy, but it's much less explicit. Whereas after 1922, he then specifically is defending the Catholic Church. He wrote uh, quite a lot of essays. He was sort of public defender of Catholicism and books like The Well and the Shallows, uh, the Catholic Church conver- conversion at the thing collect those essays and his defences of of the Catholic Church. Um, so his ecclesiology changes, but not so much the rest of his theology, which uh, it may be a little vaguer, but it w- is largely in a Catholic frame from the beginning. But ecclesi- the ecclesiology changes in the sense that Anglo-Catholics thought that uh, in that time anyway that the a branch theory applied that the Church of England was the English branch of the Catholic Church, and he came to say, actually, no, I mean, Catholics never believed that, of course, and neither did most of the Church of England, not the more Protestant bits of it. And he came to say, no, he, he accepted the fullness of the the Catholic teaching on the nature of the Church. And so he, he moved across and probably would have moved across earlier if it hadn't been that his wife was a devout Anglican and he, he delayed for her. So he was probably more Catholic in spirit from an earlier time, but didn't really want to join until she was ready to accept him joining the Catholic Church. And uh, with that that ecclesi- ecclesiological change, there's also a sort of cultural and historical change. Catholic view is a bit of a different one from the Protestant view of history about things like the Reformation. And culturally, Anglo-Catholicism is a very English phenomenon, wonderfully eccentric in places, whereas Catholicism is, is an international, worldwide uh, Christian um, church so it has a different kind of perspective as well as strictly theological change definitely perhaps moving on and that's but staying with of course the christian theme what were chesterton's views on christ who was christ to chesterton well you see he was very orthodox in his theology and also very humble so he doesn't uh, go into a great uh, depth on a lot of theological issues because he felt he wasn't theologically trained, he should leave them for theologians. So the process in a lot of his books is to work through uh, what we might call natural theology, through the things that one can observe, work in philosophical terms, building up towards uh, encountering uh, Christ at the end of the book or the essay. And very often you'll find at the end of the book or the essay, that is where the encounter with Christ comes. And then he doesn't go into Christology uh, teaching it, as such, he doesn't feel he's qualified, but he brings the reader into an encounter with Christ and then lets them uh, think about what that means for them and follow up on that. But the uh, main exception to that, of course, is The Everlasting Man, where he's provoked in this case by H.G. Wells's book, The Outline of History, which was phenomenally successful. A lot of people were getting their picture of history at a popular level from this book. And uh, in that book, Christ is completely marginalised as a sort of minor figure in human history. And so this is where Chesterton's sort of historical cast of mind comes in. And he said, we have to picture human history with Christ at the centre. He is the key figure of human history. He's the key figure figure because he is God as well as man. And therefore, you have to write a kind of human history, which first allows for the fact that there is um, something more than that humans are more than just animals. And then that has to allow for the second fact that Christ is more than just a man. And so he shapes 
Uh, it's a rather curious book. He shapes the book to allow for these things to build up an awareness that human history can't really be explained on naturalistic assumptions, uh, that uh, you have to accept that humans are more than that. Uh, the human soul is not just uh, uh, makes us more than machines or animals. And then there is one particular human being in history who cannot be contained within the categories and classifications that apply to all other human beings, namely Christ. And then it then Cheston tries to show how he is central in human history and how actually wherever his influence has touched, it has changed the course of history. So he takes a kind of a historical approach to lead us to theological conclusions in that book. And that, that is his big contribution, you know, in terms of uh, Christology. Um, Aidan Nichols called it a, uh, a Christological theology of history, that effectively you get a kind of a theological understanding of history, of what human history is about through uh, the incarnation in that book. And that, that's probably the, the biggest uh, way he writes about Christ. Before we carry on on this video, I'd like to remind you that if you do enjoy this content and want to listen to more different um, introductions or interviews about key philosophical thoughts, ideas and figures, and make sure to like and subscribe to support the channel and stay tuned for more content. Now, let's carry on on this discussion. Um, you have raised this a bit throughout um, this interview so far. What was Chesterton's response to the growing movement and development of atheism at the time and the key thinkers and ideas that were moving on in that period well this is one of his most innovative uh, features really because he was one of the first to point out that actually already then secularism had become dominant among the intellectual and political leaders of society we forget this 100 years ago but uh, the historian adrian hastings for example points out that after about 1880 um english church going has peaked by the end of the 19th century, not only has much of the working class um, moved away, drifted away from the churches, but there is a new phenomenon at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, the unmistakable decline in Christian belief of the middle class. There was a famous survey by a liberal member of parliament called Charles Masterman in 1909 called The Condition of England. And in that he wrote, the middle class is losing its religion. The drift away is acknowledged by all to be conspicuous. And that's in 1909. And the middle class is losing its religion then. And the working class had lost quite a lot of its religion already. For the intelligentsia, Adrian Hastings points out that since the mid-Victorian age, a climate of disbelief had been building up till by 1920, the principal intellectual as distinct from social orthodoxy of England was a confident agnosticism, an emphatic presupposition of disbelief. So the world he's working in at the in, among the intelligentsia and the leaders of society is much more sceptical uh, than we, we realise today. And so he turns that around and actually says Christianity is uh, the rightful rebellion against the evil empire of secularism, that already uh, secularists are imprisoning the human spirit and that the, the human uh, mind needs to be liberated and brought back into contact with the transcendent. So, for example, in Orthodoxy, he depicts Christianity as the eternal revolution and writes about the romance of Orthodoxy, not the rightness, not the respectability of Orthodoxy, but the romance of Orthodoxy. And he brings the romantic, the rebellious back uh, into his portrayal of Christianity and uh, pictures Christian as as an exciting Christianity as an exciting adventure, subverting a, a dark, dominant and constricting secular social order, a brave rebellion against secular ways of thinking that actually imprison the human spirit. 
And so he was very creative in his response to the new secular ascendancy uh, in the England of his day. Would you perhaps, um, a lot of viewers of this channel are quite interested in existentialism. And I was wondering to what degree would you um, call Chesterton perhaps uh, a Christian existentialist, someone who instead of trying to prove the existence of God via kind of the, the natural deduction or, or natural theology is more so de defending the Christian worldview because of how applicable, how beautiful it is to our lives um, in, in the world. Uh, I don't think he's, that's really where he's coming from. I mean, he does focus on the, the, the you know, if you like, reimagining the uh, phenomenology of life, re-seeing re life in whole different terms, changing our perceptions of life. Yeah. Um, but he's doing that from a very kind of orthodox rooted background. So he wrote on Thomas Aquinas, for example, and he was actually a great admirer of uh, the traditional Catholic understanding of someone like Aquinas. And, and he, he wouldn't he wouldn't be um, proud enough to sort of set himself up as a philosopher. I mean, he works in philosophical terms at a popular level, but he wouldn't call himself a philosopher or theologian. So he would very much accept, did very much accept the Catholic orthodoxy of his time. He wouldn't have, you know, branched out into existentialism as such. But you could say that the area he's working in is a lot to do with a different phenomena of human existence and how we understand them and how the imagination, uh, emotions and reason interrelate uh, in how we understand them. And he, he, he shed a lot of new light on that. But in a, in a rather original way, it's not very easy to classify in philosophical terms because he's coming from a, a literary tradition, an English Anglo-Catholic religious tradition. He's not coming from a particularly a philosophical tradition. He didn't read German idealist philosophy. He didn't, um, you know, study actually that much philosophy. He knew an awful lot of, of literature and read a lot of history, but not so much philosophy. So he's uh, not really in the same kind of categories that he's working. Perhaps developing on that, what were perhaps the influences to Chesterton? Who were some of the thinkers or who are some of the ideas that most influenced his, his thought and ideas? Well, you see, this they are the influences on him <coughs> bar one are not really philosophers. I mean, in his youth, Robert Browning, uh, the poet, Walt Whitman, also a poet, Robert Louis Stevenson, right, um, writer of famous stories such as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or Treasure Island. These influence them because of their joy in life, their positive engagement uh, with the, uh, the complex uh, problems of life. And they were his early influences and people like Dickens, of course, again, an enormously positive, uh, exuberant, inspiring writer. Um, so he starts off coming from that sort of literary framework. And then the, the person who was a philosopher and theologian who influenced him the most is Newman. Uh, he engages with Newman, um, who, again, in a, an unusual sort of way, um, a very English way, not really engaging with German idealist philosophy and all those kinds of things, but... Uh, does deal with philosophical and theological topics in a way that has become massively influential in a very original way. And Chesterton read a lot of Newman at an early age, uh, said he knew Newman very well. And in a lot of his thinking, he is reflecting Newman's thoughts on uh, how we understand, how we apprehend uh, religious truth. And so Newman is, um, is I would think, uh, the key influence on his, his sort of philosophical and theological approach. Later on, he got to know Hilaire Belloc and was influenced quite a lot by him, in some, particularly in the way he approached history. But uh, 
Newman, I would say, is the central figure. I mean, he does also read uh, Aquinas later and write a book on him, which was much commended, even though it's not very clear that Chesterton had read very much Aquinas, but he managed to absorb certain key themes uh, in such a way that uh, his book has uh, been very popular with Thomists. So uh, he did have, as time went by, and through particularly through, through friends, uh, particularly a contact with the Thomist side of the Catholic intellectual tradition. Perhaps tying to the idea of the everlasting man and and the relationship of Christianity with the world and history. What was Chesterton's view of other religions and their relationship with Christianity, perhaps like Hinduism or Islam or other forms of religion? Well, one side of this is quite positive. One side is rather uh, less so in that he tends to see, as he explains the everlasting man, that the best in, in human religions, the best in human mythology, the best in human philosophy uh, he visualizes a kind of search, uh, looking for a fulfillment, which is then found in Christ. So he's very happy to look at sort of positive aspects of religions, ancient and modern, as uh, ways of sort of searching towards something that has not yet been found, uh, unless uh, Christianity uh, comes in. And in that sense, he saw wisdom, saw certain truths in other religions, uh, was willing to say that. But uh, the seeds of ideas only not the fulfillment of uh, religious truth. And so uh, with that, he then, uh, in, when he's actually engaging with particular religions, he's rather more undiplomatic and uncompromising than people would be today. I mean, he would tend to uh, contrast Christ with other religious leaders in ways quite unfavorable to them. So, uh, for example, he says that, that Christ's teaching is is remarkably independent of its cultural context it's not limited by its time and place and culture but he thought other religious leaders were so he said for example that had Muhammad been born in Acton in the 19th century he probably would not have settled on the number four as the appropriate number for wives and uh, so he's allowed an example of cultural context influencing another religion's teaching and claimed that Christianity or at least the teaching of Christ was independent of such a cultural context. Now, that is a very uncompromising, undiplomatic uh, view. And so in certain ways, you know, when relating Christianity to other contemporary religions, he could be very negative, but in his theoretical framework was willing to look for the positives in um, the seeds of wisdom of uh, religious truth in other religions growing towards a fulfillment in Christianity. Mm -hmm. Perhaps um, another question uh, that um, is very interesting about Chesterton is his influence on later thinkers, because we often think of his late, his, well, thinkers like C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien as these massive um, kind of stalwarts of, um, the, of, of, of Christian faith in, in the 20th century. What would you say was his influence on them and perhaps further uh, philosophical movements uh, of the time which came after him? Well, I think the particularly strong influence is on the Inklings and associated writers, because Tolkien, Lewis and Charles Williams all read a lot of Chesterton in their youth. Mm -hmm. They were much influenced by him then. And uh, I mean, when he heard that uh, Chesterton had died, Charles Williams apparently said, the last of my lords is dead. Um, thinking of the people who'd influenced him in his childhood, Lewis um, said the everlasting man was the best popular apologetic I know. He said that it showed him that a Christian view of history made sense. Um, he was always uh, very appreciative of Chesterton, uh, like the way he wrote, his, the way he embedded humour into his writing as well, which uh, may be reflected a bit in Lewis's own writing. 
and so they they were influenced influenced by him. If you look at Charles Williams's supernatural thrillers, they do look quite like um, Chesterton's novels, but in rather more highbrow and refined sort of way. Uh, there's probably a more indirect influence on Tolkien in the sense that uh, some things like the focus on on, the, on humility, which is one of Chesterton's great themes, on the humble, the uh, vision of the Shire as a kind of idealised England uh, might uh, respond a bit to some of the ways Chesterton presented an idealised past England. Um, but they, they all uh, were quite influenced by him. And Dorothy Sayers sort of explains a bit how that influence worked. She says that to the young people of my generation, GKC was a kind of Christian liberator. Like a beneficent bomb, he blew out of the church a quantity of stained glass of a very indifferent period and let in gusts of fresh air in which the dead leaves of doctrine danced with the, all the energy and indecorum of Our Lady's Tumbler. And he made doctrine exciting. I mean, Christianity exciting. It's a partly recasting the way uh, these people in their youth saw Christianity and religion, seeing that actually doctrine, which was being criticised for being constricting, dull, repressive, all sorts of negatives, could actually be enormously positive uh, and uh, liberating. And... Uh, Sayers actually said, I think in some ways GK's books have become more a part of my mental makeup than those of any other writer you could name. And so I think he may also, in the case of Lewis and Tolkien and Williams, got into their mental makeup to an extent, helped them to look at uh, Christian doctrines in a more positive way than they might otherwise have done, uh, had a sense that Christianity is a liberating force, not a, pre a repressive one. And also realising that the secular, for all its pretensions, uh, to be innovative and groundbreaking is often actually much more uh, negative and much more hidebound and backward looking than uh, it is presented. So I, there was a big influence on those. But beyond that, you know, Chesterton has his influence has declined in massively uh, from uh, the day he wrote when he was a, a leading intellectual of the time. And since then, that other other people who were around when he um, was alive, like Evelyn War or Ronald Knox. Um, W.H. Auden, Graham Greene, they were influenced by him. But more recently, his influence has declined a lot, hasn't really been followed up. He didn't really fit in with a particular school and uh, of philosophy. Uh, certain apologists have been influenced by him to a degree. Quite a lot of modern apologists will have read some Chesterton and will have admired aspects of the way he wrote, but it's quite difficult to replicate what he did. So Modern apologists are probably more likely trying to write in the style of C.S. Lewis, for example, than in the style of G.K. Mm. Chesterton. Um, but uh, yes, his influence has declined quite quite massively uh, since his death. Perhaps taking a step back from Chesterton in, into the world we are we are living in today, I think a lot of problems, especially among the youth, a lot of people are viewing Christianity as this oppressive force, as this kind of restricting and constraining ideology and set of dogmas. Perhaps, do you think there is a need for a revival, a second coming of a Chesterton, perhaps, in the world today to truly revive the faith in society? And if so, do you think that revival will come through a writer like Chesterton and someone <laughs> who does present things in the in the in the spirit of Chesterton, or would it require something vastly different to suit the needs of today, or or something which is completely different? Well, I, I don't think there's one particular writer just trying to be a new Chesterton, but I think if we could recapture some of his ideas, the sense of wonder, the sense of joy at the heart of Christianity, um, the sense of adventure and rebellion and fun in uh, the Christian religion. Uh, those sorts of ideas, and as Sayers said, blow out some of the sort of 
the ugly stained glass, bring in the fresh air, show that Christian doctrines are exciting and liberating. We could do those sorts of things uh, in the way Cheston did in his own day. That would be enormously valuable for Christian apologetics. Uh, but that could happen in lots of different ways. I mean, I'm sure you know far better than me how these things might happen in terms of social media, in terms of the, the ways people interact today. It would be very different from the way it was 100 years ago. And as a sort of challenge for uh, for yourself and for contemporary uh, philosoph Christian philosophers, theologians, apologists, how to communicate in the kind of positive ways that uh, Cheston did. Because one, one of the basic things he did was he took Christianity... Uh, off the defensive and onto the offensive he presented christianity and someone put it on a note of triumphant challenge and a lot of christian apologetics is quite defensive um you know feeling that we are being uh, uh unfairly treated in the media in society whatever and therefore uh, trying to have to justify everything in a very um slow and thorough and careful way and uh, Chesterton just went straight out and engaged with the culture in positive ways, didn't worry about uh, all that defensiveness. And to get the kind of uh, upbeat, uh, enthusiastic, exuberant approach Chesterton had, uh, that kind of turns things round and actually puts the secular on the defensive instead. Uh, that is a wonderful thing if it can be done in the present day. Mm -hmm. Perhaps to end off this interview, what would be some of the key books you would recommend for someone to learn more about Chesterton? Well, he had a fantastic range as a writer, so it does depend a bit on what kind of uh, things that people like. On his non-fiction orthodoxy is usually the starting point, a uh, wonderfully charming and delightful account of his uh, arrival at Christianity. Uh, of his novels, The Man Who Was Thursday is often considered the best, uh, very uh, interesting plot, very curious uh, spiritual themes. Uh, for the more heavyweight reader, particularly those interested in, in religious history and the shape of religion, then The Everlasting Man is very famous. His essay collections, they're always a mix. Um, you was, you'll find some things you like and some things you don't. But um, The Defendant, the earliest one, um, very interesting. All Things Considered, Lunacy and Letters. I mean, various essay collections give you his style as an essayist, which is unusual and exciting. If you like literature, his biography of Dickens is probably the most famous thing he wrote. Still a classic biography of Dickens. Um, and uh, the Chaucer one's also very good, um, as are several of the others. For poetry, there are various collections around. Um, he wrote a lot, uh, obviously mixed quality of poetry, um, but you know certain very uh, poignant and famous poems that have, have stayed with us. The fiction, of course, Father Brown is the most famous thing. And uh, Father Brown, a bit unusual for his fiction, a bit different from the rest of it. But um, if you like detective stories, Father Brown is one of the, the great names in that genre. And if you want to know about Chesterton, there are numerous biographies. I'd recommend Ian Carr's biography. Uh, it's the biggest and the best, probably. The original one was by Maisie Ward. He was very much a devotee and friend of Chesterton, but she had a lot of original information because she knew him personally. So everyone else builds from that. Um, William Oddie wrote a very good book about the development of Chesterton's mind. So there's there's a lot of different uh, avenues you could take because he had so many so many interests and covered such a range. Yes. Well, thank you very much for coming on to the channel to discuss Chesterton. I think um, we've all learned so much more about Chesterton from this interview. Of course, if you enjoy this interview, then let me know your thoughts in the comments below. And of course, like and subscribe to support the channel. Stay safe, my friends. See you soon. God bless and have a good day. Thank you. And I'll see you in the next video.